Several years ago, I watched a, it was kind of a documentary uh, on on bungee jumping. And this was several years ago. It was still kind of a newish thing at that point. And so I was just watching it. It was fascinating. And if you're not familiar with bungee jumping, it's where people who are somewhat psychotic will get together and they tie a rubber band onto like a bridge railing or something. And then they tie the other end of the rubber band onto their ankles and they, they jump off. And they free fall for typically like hundreds of feet. And then the rubber band catches them and it stretches and they go down. And Some of them like, they, they have it planned out to where there's water and they go down far enough they can touch the top of the river with their hand. And then it jerks them back up and they fly and then they just sort of kind of bounce up and down until it's all stopped. And then somehow they, they pull them back up. And, and, and I was thinking, this is, this is like the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I, I've never, I'm not like afraid of heights and uh, I've repelled out of helicopters and, and I've done lots of things, but I just couldn't imagine tying what was essentially a rubber band off and, and jumping out of a hot air balloon or off the side of a bridge. I'm thinking, I mean, how does that not pull your hip out of socket or rip your leg off or, I mean, how do those things not break, right? So I'm thinking all of these things, this has got to be the most dangerous sport in existence. So they, they show this. And so I kind of watch for it a while. You know, I'm thinking there's going to be lots of news about bungee jumping deaths. They've guessed the length wrong and they've smashed into the pavement or things have broke or their legs were ripped off. And, 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 and over the years, from what I've seen, it's like almost never happened. I mean, there are there have been a few. I mean, obviously, in anything, there's a few. But those things, it, it appears, are the exceptions and not the rule. To it, bungee jumping, it, it seems, is extremely relatively safe. Um, however, guess who will never be bungee jumping? <laughs> this guy. Uh, there, there is no world I can fathom that will call me to, to do that. Now, I would jump out of an airplane long with a parachute long before I would bungee jump. Now, I accept the truth. That bungee jumping is safe. The facts are in. It is a relatively safe hobby. People rarely get hurt. But despite the fact it is reasonably safe, there is no way I am ever going to risk my life by taking part in this activity. And I mention this because we're talking about having a living faith. And as I look at the church world of our day... I fear there are many in our culture who have the same mindset about faith in Jesus I have about bungee jumping. They, they affirm the facts to be true. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. All who repent and believe will be saved. They they believe that they affirm that, but the problem is despite their affirming these things to be true, it has no practical application on their lives. Right? So there are there are many in, in, in the church world today, in, in every every community, that if if they were tomorrow to stop believing in Jesus, stop believing in God and become 
legitimate atheists, their lives would not change. I mean, there, there is not two things in their life that would be different because they suddenly stopped believing in God. Their faith in Jesus does not influence virtually a single thing they do in their lives. They were raised in such a way they would probably be moral people if they were atheists. They were raised in such a way they would probably be faithful spouses if they were atheists. They have a good work ethic so they would be good employees even if they were atheists. They love their kids. They would be good parents, even if they were atheists. They're kind and they're compassionate and they're generous. And so they would help people, even if they were atheists. There's nothing about their life that is just because they believe in Jesus. And so the question as we study Hebrews 11 and think about a living faith is, is that a biblical faith? When the Bible talks about faith is the certainty of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen, is it that? Is it an affirmation of certain truths, but those that affirmation and those truths have no impact on our life? Or, to put it another way, is it really a biblical faith if I could take away that faith and my life would not change in any noticeable way? Well, let's kind of look to see what what the Bible says. So we're looking at Hebrews eleven seven. Don't, we're going to stay seated because it's just the one verse. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I titled this tonight, an, an Obedient Faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are wonderful and worthy, glorious and amazing. We give you this time. And we open our hearts to you. Father, we, we want to, to have an, a living faith, a biblical faith. Father, we don't want to live in a way that... That is contrary to what your word says. We're out on a Wednesday night because we love you. We're out on a Wednesday night because, Lord, we want to do your will. We want to be who you want us to be. So tonight, let your spirit and your word search our hearts and our lives. Let your spirit and your word reveal things that are not as they ought to be. Father, if our, our faith is not a living faith, reveal that to us and bring us to that place. Lord, if, if we just need to be encouraged and strengthened to keep on in our living faith, then, then let your word and your spirit do that in our lives. You, you've told us your word was given to thoroughly equip us, to complete us, so we can do every good work. Right now in each of us, God, there's something not complete. There's something missing in our lives to keep us from being everything we're meant to be in Christ. And whatever that is, let your word and spirit just add something to that. So this wouldn't be just a routine or something we've done. But we would be different tonight as a result of our gathering here. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought.
clarity of speech. And let me speak your word and your ways for your glory. And we'll give you all the praise for you alone deserve it. And we ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. So our next example of a living faith is Noah. Now the story of Noah and the ark is one of the, the best known stories from the Old Testament. Uh, probably we all learned about this as children. The author of Hebrews uh, brings us up to Noah and expresses Noah had a living faith. So the question we could ask is, how do we know Noah had a living faith? Because being warned of God of something not yet seen, he did. He prepared an ark for the saving of his family. We know Noah had a living faith because he did what God told him to do. God said, not only is there a flood coming, Noah, but here's what you're to do. Go build an ark. And Noah went and did it. He obeyed. And so the next characteristic, really all of this is about having a living faith of a living faith. Is that a living faith is an obedient faith. And so right away we do see that faith that doesn't impact the way I live really isn't what the Bible's talking about. A living faith, the kind of faith we see in Hebrews 11. It's not a faith that leaves us unchanged and leaves us alone. It is a, a faith that causes us to live certain way and do certain things. And this chapter, this, this one verse, gives us three characteristics of, a lead, of, a, of an obedient faith. Right. So first, an obedient faith is a practical faith. If you're familiar with the story from Genesis 6, God gives Noah very detailed instructions. I mean, the ark is to be so many cubits, and it's to be so many cubits tall, and he's even to use a particular kind of wood, and he's to build it with pitch within and without, and to do all of these things to do that he's supposed to do to prepare it for the way God wants him to prepare it. And as Noah gets these instructions, Noah did. Genesis 6 and 7 repeatedly remind us Noah did exactly what God wanted him to do. And he did it in exactly the way God wanted him to do it. Noah believed God, so Noah obeyed God. But it would have been one thing for Noah to say, yes, I believe God is going to send a flood in judgment upon the world. But it is something entirely different for Noah to go out and build an enormous boat in preparation for the flood God said was coming. Noah building the boat and what went into him building the boat is why I say an obedient faith is a practical faith. But when God told Noah to build the boat, he gave him specific instructions and Noah went and did specific things. Practical things, right? He he went out and he cut down trees and he did whatever you do to take a tree and turn it into a plank that you can use on a boat. And he got a hammer and he hammered things together and he got a whatever they used to measure things and he measured it out and he cut it at the right length and he he got pitch and he heated it up and he put it where he was supposed to. Right? What Noah didn't do. When God told him this, he didn't gather the people and have a theology symposium. 
He didn't gather the people together and give an exposition on judgment and give an exposition on the boats and things like that. No, he he did very, very practical things, things God said to do, not things he came up with on his own. He did exactly what God said to do. And, And not only did he do this, these practical acts. From what we can gather in Genesis 6, it was going to be about 120 years. Right? Because how long does it take? Eight people to build. How big was the boat, Judy? Was it big? Enormous? How long does it take eight people with no power tools to build a boat that big? Right? So for about 120 years, he cut down trees, made them into planks, and took the planks and you know whatever you do to bend them so they form a boat and I mean day after day week after week month after month year after year for around 120 years he did very practical actions because he believed God and the practical nature of an obedient faith is one of its key features so much so God's word says If someone does not have a practical faith, they really don't have any faith at all. Let me show you this in a passage that's familiar. Turn to James 2, page 931, or probably just over a page or two in your Bible. James 2 and verse 14. Probably a familiar passage of Scripture. But it's good for us to review the familiar things because... Familiar things can become overly familiar to where they lose the significance of what's being said. So we want at times want to refresh our memories and let them wash over us again. So James 2 and verse 14. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, that's a pretty strong statement right off the bat, isn't it? What's the point of even saying you have faith if there are no practical works to back up your faith? And he continues, and and in my Bible he says, can that faith save him? I mean, right off, James is laying the foundation. A, A faith that is not a practical faith, that does not produce practical actions, it is not a saving faith. And we'll actually talk about that later. But it it does not give us the spiritual life. A person whose faith doesn't motivate practical actions has no real faith. They aren't legitimately saved. And we think, well, that's, that's really harsh. Who am I to judge? And we're not the ones to judge. But James is because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing God's word. So look at how he lays out his point. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. Do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So, again, we familiar with people having needs. What if winter, middle of winter, that that last big cold freeze we had in, in winter where it was 30 below or whatever it was. Somebody's power went out. And their windows were broken. And it was just freezing wind. 
and snow blowing in their house and they told us about it. And we went to them and we said, this is really bad. I, I, I hope everything gets better for you. I'll pray you stay warm. I'll pray that you have food and everything will be okay. And then we walked off and left. Did we actually help them in any practical, legitimate way? Well, no, of course we didn't help them. We left them in the elements. We left them without. We offered nothing useful at all. So what's the point of this story? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So a a faith without practical works is just as useless as words that say be warmed and filled, but do nothing to help. Not only is it useless, James specifically says it is dead. Now, growing up, I've heard this passage preached hundreds of times, as I'm sure you have. And often the way it's interpreted or presented is faith without works is a problem. Faith without works is at best. But that's not what he says, is it? Faith without works is dead. Now, dead is significant in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ, right? Because a believer in Jesus Christ has been brought from what? From from death to life. So a, a disciple of Christ that's been born again, we're not dead in any sense of the word, are we? We were spiritually dead. We were carried along by the course of this world laid out by the prince of the power of the air. But but God, but God who is rich in mercy, with the love with which he loved us, has made us alive and seated us with Christ. So if Jesus in regeneration and in new birth makes us alive from the dead, what does it say about a person whose faith produces no works and therefore it's a dead faith? Is it a saving faith? Is it a legitimate faith? James's point is it's not. The person who says, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but that belief produces nothing practical in their life. James says they are not saved. He goes on to explain this, lay this out more so you don't think I'm taking this too far. Some may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, what what he's doing is he's heading off some objections people may raise. And one of the objections someone could raise is, well, there's, there's two kinds of people. There are faith people who believe in Jesus. And then there are doer people who live sort of for Jesus. And, and, and the point that James is making that they would try to say is both are equally valid. Right? That, that a belief person who just says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really live for Jesus, but I believe They're saying that's as valid as a person who says, I believe in Jesus, therefore I I live for Jesus. And and James seems to be saying, you you just got to be kidding me. You don't really believe that, do you? Right? He says that, that essentially what he's saying is without practical action, there's no proof you actually 
Have faith. I mean, practical action people don't have to tell everyone. They're disciples of Jesus. People see it in the life they live. Their faith is evident in the choices they make and the way they live their life. And then he continues this theme of faith without works being dead to show how useless it is. You believe that God is one, or as probably more familiar, you believe in one God. So there's the belief. I believe, he's talking to Jewish Christians in James, you believe in one God. This is one of the key thoughts of Hebrew belief system. It's one part of the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's saying, you believe that. But notice what he goes on to say. You do well. However, the demons also believe, and if I could add, have the common sense to shudder that that's true. I mean, you think about it. Why are demons demons? Why is Satan the devil? Is it because they don't believe that there is one God? Is it because they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God? Who was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of humanity, rose again on the third day? Well, no, of course that's not it. The demons were angels who rebelled against God. They know there's only one God, they've seen him. They know Jesus was born of a virgin, they were there. They were a part of what Herod did to try to kill the infants. They know Jesus was sinless because their their leader, their king, Satan, tried to tempt Jesus into sin. They know He died on the cross because they saw it with their eyes. They know He rose from the dead. And yet, the devil is still the devil and demons are still demons and they shudder. The terrifying fact, this is all true. See, the difference between an angel and a demon isn't that one believes and the other doesn't. The difference is one obeys God and the other doesn't. Pastor John Piper says, Satan has had more theologically accurate thoughts about God in the last 24 hours than we will ever have in our lifetime. Faith... Or believing, knowing certain facts to be true does not change a demon and make them an angel. They are still in rebellion. The difference is in whether or not they take practical action in living for the one God. What James wants them and us to know is a faith that doesn't produce practical action action is dead. It is powerless and it does not save a soul. And the refusal to acknowledge that is foolishness, he says. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Then he gives some more illustrations of this. He he talks about Abraham. Abraham, because he's writing to Jews, Abraham's like the most significant person in Jewish history. So, did Abraham 
was known as the father of faith, a friend of God. His faith is legendary in Hebrew culture. So what about him? Did he just, was he a belief person? Or was he a practical action person? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was working with his works, and as a result, the uh, a result of the works, his faith was perfected. Scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed, and so what did he do? He took practical actions. He left where God told him to leave, and he went where God told him to go. He offered his son when God told him to offer him. He circumcised when God told him to circumcise. He believed, but his belief led to practical action and his justification. Then there was Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, also justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out another way. If you remember the story, the spies go in, they go to Rahab's place. She believes. She believes the God of Israel is going to take the land, kill the people, and she wants to be saved from it. She wants to be with Yahweh's people. So they tell her, here's what you do. You let us out, let us go, and you tie this crimson cord, and you hang it off this in your window, and you don't tell anybody about the fact that we've been here and where we went, and when we come back, God will spare you. So Rahab believed, but what if she had went and told everybody? Here's what they said, here's what they're doing. Would Rahab have been saved because she believed? No, she would not have. What if Rahab had cut down the crimson cord, taken it and tossed it and said, but I believe. Would Rahab have been saved? No, she would not have. Rahab believed and so she took the practical actions she was supposed to take because just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 11. Faith has never been shown entirely by our words. And it never will be. Because words are easy. The practical actions are hard. And we know this with like everything else in the world, right? I mean, if if I said I wanted to get my doctorate, but I didn't go to school, would you believe that I really wanted to get my doctorate? Do I really want to get my doctorate? Not really, right? The, the proof of my desire is in the actions I take to make it come to pass. Saying, well, I'm going to get my doctorate, well, I'm going to get my doctorate, well, I'm going to get my doctorate. That doesn't give me my doctorate. It's the practical actions that get me the doctrine. And, and you take that with any area of life and, and you come to faith and it's exactly the same way. I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, that's great. But what about the life? Because an obedient faith, a living faith is an obedient faith. And an obedient faith is a practical faith. It's, it's not in theory. It's not in Gee, I wonder what it is in where the rubber meets the road. So the first characteristic of a a living faith, an obedient faith, is it's a practical faith. Secondly, an obedient faith is an influential faith. By faith, Noah being warned. 
by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Noah's practical, obedient faith led him to build the boat. And because of his practical actions of obedience, his family was saved. Have you ever thought about how the family meeting went? Where Noah told his family God wanted him to build a great big boat to save them from an impending flood that was going to destroy the rest of the world. According to Genesis 6, Noah was already odd as far as the world was concerned. The world at that time was wicked. God saw the thoughts and the intents of their hearts were all wickedness all the time. But, but Noah was different. Noah was righteous in his generation. Noah was blameless in his generation. And in fact, I think that the, Noah was the only one. He was Even his family weren't necessarily But Noah was. He was different. He stood out from the crowd because of his relationship with God. Now, not only was Noah going to be different because he was righteous and blameless. He was also going to build an enormous boat to save himself and his family from a flood coming to destroy the entire earth as judgment from God. And he was building it big enough. Two of every kind of animal that God was going to send to come and walk up the ramp and go in all by itself, by themselves. Now, what makes this even more an astounding thing is most scholars I've read, conservative scholars particularly, they believe nothing like this had ever happened before. There had never been a a flood, much less one of this magnitude. Many believe Noah may well have built the very first boat. They hadn't built real boats yet. So um, imagine what Noah does. Noah calls his family in and he says, God spoke to me. He didn't speak to y'all. He didn't do it together in this room with all of us. He spoke to me when I was out there praying. He said he's tired of everybody. He's going to kill everybody. With a flood. What's a flood? I don't really know. Apparently it's going to rain or something and it's going to drown everybody. And and in the process, in order for us to be saved, we have to build a boat. What's a boat? I don't know. Apparently it's this big thing that we're going to get in that's going to float. And we're going to have to cut down trees and cut them into planks. And God's given me all the information. But I, I want you guys to help me. I want you guys to be a part of it. And so they said, yeah. Okay, Dad, if you say God spoke to you and said to build a great big boat for a flood, okay, we believe you. We trust you. Your life is such that if you say God told you this, we believe God told you this. And so they got busy. See, Noah not only had this previous testimony of faith in God, He then went out and began to do the practical applications that we've already talked about. What would happen to Noah's family, do you think, if Noah had said, God said he's going to send a flood, it's going to kill everybody, we're supposed to build a boat, we'll start tomorrow. I mean, mean, it's like 120 years away, we got time. I'll do it later. And they would later, weeks go by, and he's not cut down a tree and made a single plank, picked up a hammer. Dad, I thought you said God was going to, Send a flood. Don't you believe that? Oh, yeah, he is. what he said. I believe it. Aren't you going to build a boat? Ah, I mean, eventually. Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I mean, yeah, sure, sure. We ought. 
People ought to build a boat like God said. Sure, they ought to. But uh, I'm just right now the game's on, or you know, we've got. I want to stay home and make crepes, and so I just can't really do this. What would have happened to Noah's family in that time when the flood came and the boat wasn't built? Well, I don't believe God would have saved them. I believe they would have drowned just along with everybody else, and God would have saved humanity in another way. They had to jump up and they had to get to work. Noah and his faith and his practical application of his faith influenced his family. So they got on the boat and they were saved on the day of judgment. Our our faith, the way we live out our faith, our practical faith that we live out day to day in front of the world. Is the greatest way we will ever influence others. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't influence by sharing the gospel verbally. The gospel is a message. It is a story. It must be told. People are not going to see our lives and suddenly get saved. That's not what happens. That's not what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word And somebody has to share it with them. But here's where our faith and our works come together. For me to say I believe in God. And I believe that God created the world and man sinned against him. And God sent his son and he died that awful death. And he was put in the tomb and he raised on the third day. If I say I believe all of that. My life ought to demonstrate something. And if I'm going to come to you and say, this is God who did this. And he sent Jesus and I believe it and you should believe it too. Here's what I think you're going to do. You're going to look at my life. And you're going to ask yourself, does he look like he believes what he's saying? Does his life show he believes in a great and an awesome God who spoke the world into existence and saved rebellious humanity by sending his son to die? Does his life demonstrate that? And if it doesn't, you're probably not going to listen. It would be like if some skinny guy that maybe weighed 100 pounds in wet clothes came to your door trying to sell muscle building supplements. Well, do you take the supplements? I do. Hmm. Well, apparently they don't work very well, do they? That's not impressive. I don't see anything in you that leads me to believe muscles are built by taking your supplements. In the same way, people are going to look at our lives and say, hmm, I see something there. There is something different about you. Tell me what you have to say. Or they're going to say, you are, you're just like me. You're not any different than me at all. Except this belief, which apparently I don't need because I'm just like you as we are. We see this idea of our life giving weight to our words. In the practical way we live for Jesus all throughout God's word. Let me just give you three that are familiar Your light must shine before people in such a way they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
And so we're to glorify God out in the world. Is the lights in the darkness. How are we lights? By saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Or by practically living out the fact we believe day to day and people see something in us different that makes us stand out from the crowd and thus they glorify God. It's the practical way we live it out that influences them to glorify God. Another one, and this one, I'm going to start at the top. But notice there is a way we can live that would prove to the world we were blameless and innocent. It would convince them we were children of God and we lived above reproach. And we would stand out in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And we would be like lights in the world. That sounds great. How do we do that? Well, here's the practical way. Do all things without complaining or arguing. You say, how's that a faith issue? Well, because God said, do all things without complaining or arguing. And I believe, like Noah, I believe, I'm warned of God. This is what I'm to do. So I'm going to live in reverence and I'm going to do all things. And as I, I mean, think about our world. Doesn't someone that doesn't complain stand out from the crowd? Doesn't someone that's not always arguing and in odds with someone stand out from the crowd? If we go out there and we argue with everybody all the time and we grind, moan and complain about everything all the time, the world sees it and they say, you're just like me. But if we don't, they're like, hey, you're odd. You're different. Why? And that leads to this one. We're familiar with Peter saying, sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts as Lord. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. So we should live in a way. That makes people wonder why we live the way we live. We're familiar with that verse. We're, we talk about that. But we miss the verses before it. So how do, we, how do we live in a way that causes people to ask that question? Well, the first, we were zealous for good. Zealous to do what is good in the world. And if we do that, we can live Fearlessly of harm that would come to us because we're doing what's right. But this is a fallen world. People are bad. So we might suffer for doing what's right. So how do we endure suffering for during suffering for doing what's right? We we do it. We, we recognize one. We're blessed. I don't know about you. That's not normal to me. That's not the way I live my life on the average and don't be afraid of their intimidation and don't live in dread. So how do we live in a way that would cause people to say, why do you live the way you live? And so we can tell them about Jesus. Well, we be zealous for good, confident that what we're doing is right and we won't be harmed for it. But if we are, if we suffer for the sake of doing right, we say, I'm blessed like the apostles who would leave the Sanhedrin council rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Don't you think that stood out? Or like Paul and Silas singing and praising God in the Philippian jail at midnight. And, and the Bible says, And all 
the prisoners heard and were not afraid. You can make me suffer. You can make my life miserable. You, you might could even kill me. But I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to let up. I'm not going to be chicken little and scream the sky is falling and hide. I'm still going to be zealous for good works. And then as we do that, people will say, why? Why do you live that way? And we can say, there is a God in heaven who created the earth and sent his son to die for our sins. And I believe in him. And if you believe in him, you can be zealous for good works. You can live without fear. And you can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. The reality is, people see how we live our professed faith in Jesus. And they make decisions about Jesus based upon that. They make decisions about whether or not we're the kind of people they ought to listen to regarding spiritual things. We can't reach people for Jesus without verbally sharing the gospel of Jesus. But without a life of practical obedience to Jesus, our words will lack the power necessary to influence people for Jesus. Our greatest influence will almost always come from our lives of practical obedience. Because a living faith is an obedient faith. And then thirdly, an obedient faith is a saving faith. And I won't spend much time here because we've covered it in previous weeks. And we've talked about it already today. But it says that Noah, by his practical obedient faith, became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. And the idea of being the heir of righteousness is that he received righteousness by faith. In the end, Noah wasn't saved by his good works. Noah was saved by receiving righteousness from God. Good works alone do not save. That we, we never have merit before God to earn our righteousness. No matter what our, our merit is. Whether it's all of the activities we do. All of the good things we do. Do not give us any merit before God at all. If if bad things have happened to us in our lives and we think, well, I've already gone through hell, so I get to go to heaven. The bad things we've endured earn us zero merit before God as far as righteousness is concerned. There is only one path to receive righteousness, and that is through faith in Jesus. Now, we've mentioned in, in, in James, faith without works is dead. There's no power there. We've seen in Hebrews 11 and 2 that the, the people of old... The Old Testament people, they gained their approval from God by their faith. I was looking at that lesson just to make sure I didn't cover the same things. But in that lesson, we we discussed, we talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, many times they did good things. They still did the religious activities. They went to synagogue, or they went to temple, they made the sacrifices. And yet because they didn't have faith in God, God rejected them. God told them. That he, he despised their songs of praise. He, he would not receive their sacrifices and their burnt offerings were a stench in his nostrils. Why? Because they didn't have faith. And Hebrews 10 and 4 reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. 
The sacrifices were made as an act of faith. I believe God. So I will practically obey God by offering this bull or this goat to God. Salvation is a faith issue. It always has been and it always will be. No one at any time will ever be saved or earn righteousness by their merits, no matter what those merits may be. Good deeds, religious activities, patiently enduring suffering apart from Christ, none of that earns righteousness, merits salvation. Salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is always the way it's been. This is always the way it will be. But that kind of faith produces a change. If truly we believe that there is a God in heaven who spoke the world to existence and looked at sinful, rebellious humanity and love them enough to send his son to die horribly on their behalf, to pay the penalty their sins had earned. And he truly died. He truly took hell in our place. And he rose again and freely saves us because we repent and we believe in him. A belief like that must change us. I'll close with a story. There's a, a guy, I think his name is Jordan Peterson. He's a, I think he's, I don't even know who he is too much. He's, I think, British, European at the very least. Conservative kind of speaker. But he's not necessarily a Christian. As he considered the idea of Jesus, he was overwhelmed by it. And, and he he didn't affirm faith. But what he basically said was, this story is too big. Because if Jesus is all these things that your Bible says he is, and he did all those things your Bible says he did, what claims he has to my life? What difference I must, I must, what difference that must make in my life? What a change I must live in my life. He's not a believer, but he got it. He understood the reality. And the sad truth is there are people all throughout our community, all throughout the churches of Guyman and Oklahoma and America and probably the world. And they don't get it. They say, yes, I believe. But their professed belief in God has no more impact on their life than the fact they might believe bungee jumping is safe. They are more passionate evangelists for their political party than they are for Jesus. They are more engaged in social change through some sort of other issue than than living for Jesus. That their faith in Jesus, it doesn't motivate them to rise up and go out and do anything for Jesus other than say, I believe in Jesus. 
We must pray for those people if we know those people. For the Bible declares they are lost. And on the day of judgment, they will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. And if we are those people, dear friend, we must repent of our sins and our apathy. And we must believe in Jesus and get that belief down in our souls until it produces a practical, influential, obedient, saving faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Noah, after receiving the message, moved with godly fear, some translations say, moved in reverence, my Bible says. Father, as we hear the message of the cross and the message of Jesus, what kind of reverence and godly fear ought that to produce in our lives? And where that's not there, disturb us, bother us. And where we don't see it in others, Father... Disturb us there as well. Not in, not in judgment. And we can say, ah, oh, they're not really saved. So we can say, oh God, save them. Convict them. Draw them to you. Let us not live apathetic about our lives and our faith. And let us not live apathetic about the lives and the faith of others who profess to believe in Jesus. Let us be like Noah. People who have a living faith seen in the practical acts of obedience. The influence it has upon others as they say, why do you live the way that you live? And it gives us a confident assurance. We are yours. We've been born again. Heaven is our home. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.